Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hasia whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita. And I am Greta Johnson. This week, Trisha is talking with Rebecca Skloot, who is the author of a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which if you haven't read it, that is okay because now there is an HBO movie based on it. The story centers around a young journalist named Rebecca Skloot, who's trying to figure out the real personal story behind the HeLa cells. These are Henrietta Lacks cells, which were harvested without her permission when she had cancer in the 1950s. They became the backbone of a lot of modern medical science. Rebecca set out to find the real family, including Deborah Lacks, Henrietta's daughter, and together they tried to find the truth about Henrietta's life. Here's a scene from the HBO film, where Deborah, played by Oprah, is talking to Rebecca Skloot, played by Rose Byrne, for the first time. Yeah, who is this? Hi, my name's Rebecca Skloot. How are you? Mm-hmm. Dr. Patillo actually gave me your... How's he doing? He's fine. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how much he told you about what I'm trying to do. Just as you was going to ask me some questions about my mama's sales. Yes, yes. Well, um, uh, I want to write a book about your mother. And while there's all this stuff about her cells, it always struck me that nobody ever wrote about her or her life. And that's why I've been trying to track you down and your family down to see if you would be interested in working with me. And just telling me um, more about, about her. All I gotta say about that is, hallelujah. Somebody wanted to talk about my mama. Because back when I was a child, old folks, they didn't talk about nobody wasn't alive. So my whole life I grew up not knowing one thing, not even the littlest things, like what was her favorite color or or what happened to her clothes. The film, I should note, wasn't out yet when I talked to Rebecca. So we didn't talk much about the specifics of the movie, more about the making of it and of the book. Yes, which you should read because it's an excellent book. It's one of my favorite pieces of long form journalism. So I talked to Rebecca not just about writing the book, but finding out that Oprah wanted to help make it into a movie and she wanted to be in the movie. Here's Trisha's conversation with Rebecca. So for folks who don't know, who was Henrietta Lacks? Henry Lacks was a poor black tobacco farmer who grew up in Southern Virginia. And in 1950, when she was 30 years old, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And she went to the hospital at this point. She'd moved to Baltimore. So she went to Johns Hopkins, which was the only hospital she could go to because it was the only hospital for miles that treated black patients. And this was the era of segregation. And without telling her before treating her cancer, her doctors just took this little piece of her tumor and put it in a dish. And scientists had been trying for decades to grow human cells outside the body. 
and it had never worked. And for some reason, her cells just never died. So they're still alive today, growing in laboratories around the world. This is so crazy. Yeah, it is. And they became one of the most important things that happened to medicine in a lot of ways. They were used to help develop the polio vaccine. They went up in the first space missions to see what would happen to human cells. They've been in space? Yes. And this is one of my favorite, like, Gila in space (laughs) sort of things that I like to do. Um, And just really, there's not a single person out there who hasn't personally benefited from some research with her cells, more like a lot of it. Vaccines, most of our cancer medications were developed with help of her cells. The list just goes on and on. Gene mapping, cloning. She didn't know. No one ever told her the cells had grown. She died just a few months later. Her cancer was incredibly aggressive. And she left five kids behind. And they didn't know anything about the cells until the 70s when some scientists decided to track down her children to do research on them in order to learn more about the cells. So 20-some-odd years after her death, they got a phone call and were sort of sucked into this world of research that they didn't really understand. No one explained it to them, and they didn't know that they then became a second generation to be used in research. So the the story of Henrietta Lacks is multiple generations of a family who are sort of repeatedly drawn back into research in ways that have been very difficult for them. Right. So, I mean, really, modern medicine has her cells at the core in so many ways. And yeah. probably we haven't even figured out all the things we can do with these cells because they're still actively being used, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. They're still the standard in most laboratories. And it's not even, I mean, it, it is that her cells themselves are at the core of a lot of research that's so important, but also they are the reason we have non-HeLa cell research as well. So even just the most basic elemental things like what kind of glass do you use to grow a cell in a lab? They figured that out with her cells. How do you ship cells by mail? They figured that out. You know, in vitro fertilization relies on so many different technologies that were made possible from HeLa cells. So even though HeLa cells themselves aren't used to grow embryos that are then implanted into people to lead to new babies, we wouldn't have that without the cells. So it's kind of impossible to separate out HeLa cells and the different ways that their tentacles reach into all different sorts of research. So this book that you wrote came out in, in 2010, and pretty quickly after that, Oprah snatched up the movie rights. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how that came to be. And at what point in the process did you realize she wasn't just interested in the story, but she wanted to play a role in the story? So there were a couple different parties who were interested in the movie version of the book. And one of them, her name's Tara Grace, uh, who is a producer at HBO. And she read it actually as a book proposal. So she read it many years before I finished the book and was really interested in it then. And then many years later, I didn't know she had moved to HBO. And the story that I have gotten there is that she is not a person who sort of takes a stand about, you must do this thing. But that's what she did with this. She basically was like, hi, this is my new job. We have to do this movie. And so she's the reason it sort of moved to HBO. And then Alan Ball, who's also a producer on it, had read it independently um, as a book proposal as well, and he was interested and was already and working with HBO. Know, folks might know him yeah. from Six Feet Under, Feet Under True yeah. Blood. Oh, man, yes. yeah. Quite, yes, clearly similar to this story. Epic right? sweeping no. stories. Epic sweeping stories that kind of walk <laughs> this line of life and death, and yeah. there's big ethical questions in sure. them, even though they're very, you know, it's kind of sci-fi in, in True Blood. But so he obviously has an interest in this stuff as well. So HBO was interested, and Oprah then independently became interested when the book came out. So, you know, what she later told me was that a lot of people started just sending her the book. 
book and saying, you've got to read this, you've got to read this. So she read the book and was very interested in doing it and had also apparently been talking to HBO for quite some time about doing something. So it was sort of this confluence of a lot of different people who cared a lot about the story saying, let's do this together. And there was major motion picture interest in it from some people who were pretty amazing. But I went with HBO for a lot of reasons. And also that HBO at the time had recently done the movie uh, You Don't Know Jack about Jack Kevorkian, mm-hmm. and they had done the Temple Grandin movie. Oh, yeah. So they had this this recent history of doing what I felt like were really good movies about complicated ethical science things where there was no clear-cut, good-bad answer. They lived in this gray zone that this story lives in in a way that I felt was good. And they also were willing to let me be involved in the process in a way that I felt like a major motion picture company might not, and that they were willing to involve the family. But of course, Oprah, I mean, Deborah, for years said she wanted Oprah not just that she, I mean, she had all sorts of plans for Oprah during the book research process <laughs> that were started much, much earlier than anyone started talking about a movie. But she had her dress picked out to go on the Oprah show like years before the book came out. She for years would say that she wanted Oprah to play Henrietta. And then at a certain point, she sort of realized, oh, Henrietta was 30 right. when she died. And Oprah is my age. And then she went, Oprah's my age. Mm. Um, yes. And so she predicted everything that happened wow. with this book in a way that's really kind of haunting almost. So as part of the process of Oprah and the other actors developing the characters, I went through my old audio tapes of my interviews with Deborah and all the time we spent together. And I found this one tape of the two of us sitting in a car, just like driving on a random day, talking. And she was saying, you know, this book is going to be a bestseller. It's going to be in schools all over the country. It's going to become a movie. Oprah's going to play me. It's going to be amazing. And in the background, I'm going, okay, Deborah, Deborah, Deborah. Like this, <laughs> that is just crazy. Like that would be amazing. But, you know, I was like, I don't even have a publisher yet, <laughs> and I really hope that I find one. I was really young. I didn't – I'd never published a book before. So it's this amazing conversation to listen to now where it's, she just predicted every single thing that happened. And at some point – so Oprah was interested and involved in the production in obtaining the the film for HBO. And then there was like every once in a while this fact that Deborah wanted her to play her was known among mm-hmm. the people who were involved. But Oprah didn't, you know, she was She's like, a busy hey. woman. Yeah. yeah. And um, she was starting own. Like, I mean, this yeah. was, you know, this was a very different time. The option happened in 2010. So that's seven years ago. And there were different versions of the screenplay that kind of came and went. And, um, you know, it's a very complicated story to tell in 400 pages in a book, let alone in, you know, less than two hours on screen. Right. So there were a lot of different renditions of the screenplay and how how do you turn this into a film? And when George C. Wolf began writing this a new version of the script and was going to direct it, I think at that point it was pretty clear everybody wanted her to play Deborah, but she was pretty, you know, she was like, I'm not sure. And and when she read the script that George wrote, I think that's when it really clicked for her that she really wanted to do it. And so you got to be more involved with the HBO process than maybe you would have been if it was a big studio movie for the screen because a lot of times authors I think do get sort of you know told to just kind of hand over the source material and and see you later. (laughs) Yeah and that was something from the very beginning I just wasn't willing to do and the story of Henrietta and her family is really this legacy of you know what it means to have your story told what's truth what's not truth you know there were fake names put out there was so much misinformation over the years I was worried about overly fictionalizing the story in a way that would kind of add to that and cause problems. And I wanted the family to be involved. I really wanted them 
to sort of have a say in how this all happened. And from the very beginning, I just was like, I'm not making a movie unless we can all be involved in it because it just felt like the right thing to do. So the movie took about seven years <laughs> to get made yeah. then, and you'd been working on it for a little more than a decade before right. then. We're looking at eight. I mean, I'm on year 18 right now. <laughs> 18 of Henrietta Lacks. When yeah. you were thinking about yeah. this story and you first sort of stumbled on this woman's life and her legacy, did yeah. you imagine that you'd spend the next nearly <laughs> two decades no. so immersed in her life yeah. and, the, and everything that came afterwards? No, I couldn't have possibly imagined it. And, you know, so many writers go into a project thinking, oh, this will take me about two years. And then a decade later, they go, oh, <laughs> wow, that was much more complicated than I thought it was going to be. So, yeah, it seems like one of those things that we, if you know in advance, there are a lot of things that might not get done if writers knew sometimes <laughs> what they were getting into. But I honestly think that even if I knew it would take as long as it took, I probably still would have just, I had to. I was so obsessed with it. Um, you know, this moment when the book came out, I at that point, I'd been working on it for 11 years. And I was just like, woohoo. It's done. I'm like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I've been the person who worked on this one thing. You know, I did a lot of other things to try and pay the bills and, you know, get to a place where I could publish the book. But everything was in service of this story. Every freelance article I did, every little weird job that I took was all about how can I get the book done? How can I get the book published? And so when it came out, I was like, okay, now I have to figure out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And then now this is eight years later, seven years later, and I'm still doing it. More with Rebecca Skloot in eight years. Or like a minute. <laughs> You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So as we were discussing, Oprah is now playing Deborah Lax in the movie version of your book. And uh, there's a character who's sort of you sort as of well. Sort of. Definitely named Rebecca Skloot. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as much as, yeah. you know, I remember yeah. talking with uh, Kim Baker about Tina Fey playing her in Whiskey mm. Tango Foxtrot and her being like, right. yeah, it's kind of me. They even did like a little bit of a change on her name in that character. Oh, right. um, but, you know, watching somebody play you yeah. is probably very interesting and yeah. strange. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> strange sort of out of body experience. <laughs> And one of the things that was challenging about the whole movie development process was the Rebecca character, as we call her. And she is me. I mean, there's no attempt to say she's not. You know, they really tried to stick to me as much as they could. But at the same time, in putting myself in the book, this was something I wrestled with a lot. I did not want to be in the book. I was like, this is their story. This is not my story. I teach journalism and I often harp on my students and say, like, stop inserting yourself into other people's stories. It's this sort of reflex that a lot of young journalists have is just put themselves in a story. And so I always say, like, why are you there? What's the purpose of your character? 
And the reason that I was in the book was that at a certain point I realized, you know, the book's about a lot of different things, and one of them is ethics in journalism and the impact that storytelling can have on people. And I told the stories of all the other journalists who came along before me and the impacts that they had on them. And then there I was. I'd been there for 10 years and probably had potentially the most dangerous impact on them in some ways because Deborah was out being exposed to all sorts of information because she was with me and she wanted it. You know, she really much wanted that to happen. And then at a certain point, I went, oh, it's like disclosure. It's not that I'm I'm inserting myself into their story. It was sort of acknowledging that I was a character and I was another journalist who'd come along and had a potential impact on them and that it would have been dishonest to leave that out. So it took me a long time to get to that place. And then when I got there, I was like, nothing about me that isn't the journalist character is in there. So you don't learn about my personal life. You don't know what's going on outside of Rebecca the journalist. So then when they came to develop the character for the movie, they were like, oh, this is a pretty one-dimensional character. <laughs> like, what's going on in her personal life? And that kind of push-pull of, you know, what what can we fictionalize about her personal life? What was really going on in your personal life? And how much of that goes in? And in the end, it's actually, there's not much in there. But there were drafts of it where there was quite a bit. And mm. that was a very strange process for me. And, you know, in the end, there are things about the Rebecca character that are fictionalized. But, you know, I think Rose worked really hard to try to capture the sort of essence of me in all of those moments as much as she could. She spent quite a bit of time with me. It's very weird to see the movie because, I mean, physically, she really captured me in a way that is kind of freaky to people who know me. <laughs> <laughs> like she caught some of your mannerisms oh, yeah. by osmosis as in, in her acting process? Yeah, she definitely captured some of my mannerisms, the sort of, you know, some of the just energy, my voice. You know, she has an Australian accent. She's oh, right. Australian. Yeah. So she listened to a lot of tapes of me talking with Ebra, and she, you know, spent a lot of time with me. And there were moments where, like, one of the, the first day we were on set, me and a bunch of members of the Lax family were walking around, and we all had these headphones on, like you do on a set, so you can hear what's going on. In the, and it was between takes, so they were about to start something, and then this voice came through the headphones, and the Lax family members who I was with were in front of me, and they turned around and looked at me, like, what? And I, I was like, yeah, that was me, but I didn't say anything. Oh, and that's such a weird experience. It was the weird, and I, for a second, I was like, was that one of my tapes? And And then I was like, Oh, that was Rose. That's Rose being Byrne. me some <laughs> other place on this set, and wow. everyone standing here, including me, thought it was me. So that happened a few times, um, <laughs> which was really weird. And I can't watch it without just basically sitting there with my hand over my mouth the whole time. And <laughs> maybe at some point that will stop being weird, but I, I don't imagine that. <laughs> I can't imagine that happening. So eleven years of researching yeah. this book. At what point did you finally make contact with, and do you think really earn the trust of the family? Because that, like you said, is a complicated thing. They've had journalists come through and try to tell their family story before. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that process for you. Yeah, well, it's an ongoing process in some ways because the family is a lot of different people, right. um, and it just gets bigger and bigger all the time. So when I was first working on the book, it was really me and Deborah in a lot of ways, and. I did talk to her brothers, and they were involved in, at different levels. So her youngest brother, Zakaria, spent probably the most time with us in terms of going and doing things with us. So he came and saw the cells with us for the first time, and he was more involved than his other two brothers. But even he was sort of not around that much. The middle brother, Sonny, he and I talked quite a bit, but it was more just the two of us would talk. He didn't spend a whole lot of time with me and Deborah. And then his, his the older brother, Lawrence, was sort of the most complicated in some ways. He he was actually the first one who I sat down and talked with. Um, 
And then he would have moments of sort of pushing away and saying, no, I don't don't want to do this. And then he'd come back. And a lot of that, you know, he is the oldest. He was 16 when she got six, you know. And Probably has the most so memories has, of her. And as also a just the sort of yeah. trauma of it. Yeah. You know, the story affected him very differently because he was older. And I mean, he said to me at various times, there was a lot that he didn't want to remember that he'd sort of buried from that time. And, you know, and so he was the most distant of the three of them. And sometimes he would try to stop Deborah. This was a dynamic they had throughout their life where she was like, I want to learn about my mother and I want to find all this stuff. And he would just be like, he would try to stop her for various reasons. And then Sonny, the middle one, would sort of step in and be like, you let Deborah do what she wants to do. You know, if you don't have to participate, if you don't have to. The and middle he sibling. was sort of there. Right. Yeah. And it was yeah. kind of classic family dynamics. So Sonny was the one to trust me, I think, first. He talked to me most initially and I think was sort of feeling me out and sort of saying, can I trust you with my sister, who is the more fragile of the two of them? And with her, it took a full year to get her to talk to me. And I did a lot to try and win her trust. And I realized we had one phone conversation in the beginning where it was clear she wanted desperately to talk to me and really had the same questions I I did. Who was she? What did she do for science? What can we learn about Henrietta? Like she had the same questions, but then was also scared, I think justifiably so. And I didn't know why she was scared. I didn't know what had happened to the family at that point. I didn't even know the kids had been used in research and all the various things that happened to them. So I set out to try to answer some of her questions about her mother, which were also my questions, so that I could just basically show her, look, I want the same thing that you want. I'm not hiding anything from you. I would like to talk to you and learn your story. And in the process, I can also help you find your mother's story. And and it took a, a year for her to talk to me at all. And then there was this process for the next year or two even where she would have moments of getting afraid and sort of back away. And then I would have to sort of prove myself and say, like, what do you need to know that I really am a journalist? I'm not doing anything covert here. And you see that in the movie quite a Mm -hmm. bit more in some ways than in the book. Oh, hi. I wasn't expecting you until tomorrow. Remember that first time we talked and I didn't want to see you? Yeah. Who told you to go down to Clover? Sonny. And um, Dr. Patillo. And I brought it in... Sonny didn't mention that to me. I don't know, Rebecca. I'm not doing anything behind your back, I swear. Well, this cardio say you a freelance science medical writer and editor, and you say you're doing all this on your own. So I don't know about that. Freelance just means that I work for myself. I know what it means, but everybody got somebody backing them. Nobody have the money to do all these things you're doing. You're traveling and you're, you're, you're recording. Deborah, and I you're... swear, I haven't gotten a penny from it. So let's talk about this book you want to write, which is all fine and good. But where's the funding in there for the family? I don't have any funding. And you ain't offered none either. I can't offer you something that I don't have. I told you I want to start that foundation. Where is it? Where's what? The book. What? You said you turned it in, so where is the book? There's no book yet. Where is the book? I said, where is the book? Is it for sale already out there? And you're making money off of my family like everybody else? Where is the book? Look, here, here, here. MasterCard, Visa, $2,000 past due. Travel expense report. I write cheesy articles to pay for our rooms and gas. Checking account. $87 $87 in my checking account. Okay, Deborah, I swear to you, honest to God, no one's given me any money. So that went on for a long time, but then eventually she really did completely trust me, and, and we developed a very strong relationship. And then the younger gen, like the Lax family is so big and diverse in so many different ways, and 
Henry's grandkids and great-grandkids weren't really involved at all. I mean, they were just sort of like, who is this white woman who just sort of follows Aunt Deborah around everywhere? Yeah, like, yeah. But then when the book was finished, and I, I sent a bunch of copies to the family for fact-checking and so they could read it and we could talk about it. And that was the first time the younger generation got involved. And they read it and talked to the older generation about it. And their response was, Henrietta is a rock star. This is amazing. They also then understood, I think, part of why the family, the older generation was angry. I think they hadn't mm-hmm. fully understood that and um, because they didn't really talk about it. But then the younger generation has just taken the story and just made it their own in so many ways that are incredible to see. They travel all over the country doing speaking events and you know meeting with students and scientists and consulting on what should consent forms say. And one of them's an RN and two of them sit on a board with the NIH to help determine what researchers should be able to do work with the genome of the HeLa cells. And they've just taken the story and run with it in a way that I think is pretty incredible. So this story made you realize, I think you've said before, that behind every biological sample, there is a living creature, whether it's human or animal. And it's something that in your work as a veterinary technician, you were seeing up close day to day that kind of inspired some of the writing you did later on. So how can we going forward be more conscious of that very fact? Yeah, I mean, I do think storytelling is one of the most important aspects of that. You know, I have seen through this book and the way that it's been adopted in schools and it's required reading in so many research institutions. I meet scientists all the time who say I require everyone in my lab to read this book when they start working for me. And I think having narratives that you can hand to people or play for people or, you know, whatever way you're delivering the stories is such a huge part of that. You know, we are a storytelling people. We've been learning from stories, you know, oral history, cave painting, the whole thing. I mean, we are just a species that really connects to stories and narrative in a way that's very important. And it's often left out, particularly with the sciences, because people think, oh, science is hard and when I was working on this book and I, people would ask me what I was working on, I'm working on a, a book about the first human cells ever grown in culture. And I would just see their faces <laughs> glaze over and I go, no, 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 wait, wait, it's interesting. And then I, you know, have to start telling the story. And, you know, to me that, that's why I do what I do. We need people who see the stories and bring them out into the light so the people in the sciences can see them, but also so that the public can see the human stories behind the science because there are absolutely human beings behind all that too, and that tends to be dismissed. You know, scientists are often thought of as these just sort of automatons who are in, especially when it comes to controversial types of research and animal research and, you know, this idea that there are these like evil demons in the laboratory. <laughs> there was hand, yeah, hand there was hand wringing in there. there. Yes, just for the listener, <laughs> there was very good hand wringing. <laughs> and so, to me, it goes both ways. It's the importance of telling the stories, sort of from both sides, to illustrate it. And you know, I think we're seeing it more and more now. I mean, you know, the hidden figures, this kind of phenomenon is like it's great, and that's what we need. And there are so many more stories like this that haven't been told. So to me, it's that, and then it's talking about it. This is why I'm still traveling and talking at schools. This is why I think it's so amazing that the Lacks family is actually going out to these institutions, not just to talk about their story, which I I think that part of it is important, but to be there in the room so scientists can actually say, look, there are living, breathing human beings that are related to those cells that I've been using in my lab, and I never thought to wonder where they came from. And we hear that all the time. And so that's really why we're all still out here doing this. Is that the core work of the foundation that you have? 
Yeah, so the foundation is more about helping people who were the victims of science in some ways. So the broader mission of the foundation is to help people who made significant contributions to science without their consent and their descendants. So Henrietta's descendants qualify for grants, family members of the Tuskegee Syphilis Studies men, the descendants of people used in the human radiation experiments in the 50s. I mean, there's a sort of horrifying when you really start looking at numbers, how many people qualify for this sort of assistance. And I started the foundation. This was something I'd always said to Deborah that I would do once I understood their story. And there was an enormous amount of money made off of these cells in different ways, and that none of that ever made it back to the family, either in terms of actual money, but also just in terms of access to the health care. Right. And, you know, Henrietta's cells were behind some of our most important medical advances. And for many generations, her family has had a hard time getting access to any health care, you know, just like so many other people. But it's particularly troubling with her family, given her contributions. So we've helped with cataract surgery, a lot of dental care, a lot of education. That's sort of been the main goal. Everything from some private high school to college to graduate school, RN education. And then we also help with emergency needs connected to sort of employment. For example, one of Henrietta's sons was a truck driver and his truck broke down a few times and we would help, we would fix his truck so he could get back to work. And anyone can donate. We have, there's a website, henriettelaxfoundation.org. And my hope is that the movie will take that to a whole new level. I mean, it's, you know, I saw this moment of the movie coming out as the potential sort of next generation, you know, next phase of the foundation to see what can happen with it. I mean, it's got Oprah in it, so everybody's going to watch it, <laughs> yeah. right? So that yeah. should bode well. Yeah, right, I hope so, <laughs> yeah. After the break, we have homework from Rebecca. It might be a wrap. But Henny knew there was something wrong. She went to Johns Hopkins and saw Dr. Jones. Maybe. We'll see. You're listening to Nerdette. All right, before we let you go, one last question, which is, what would your homework be for a Nerdette listener? So... <laughs> For some reason, the one thing that's really standing out in my head is that there is this guy, Science with Tom is his is what he does, and he's amazing. So he goes to different schools. I think it's usually like sixth, seventh grade, sort of middle school. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if he has high schools. And he works with kids, and it's often in minority communities, and they will create these amazing rap videos <laughs> that are all science-based. So it's how do you kind of use culture, music, fun <laughs> to get kids, particularly minority kids, interested in science and to give them access to it and to sort of own it in a way that is incredible. So at a school in Oakland, they recently did a video of Henry Lacks where these kids just did an incredible job. They write the lyrics and they perform it and they produce it. It's a really high quality video. So I think every single Nerdette listener should go watch that video because it's just so much fun to watch. <laughs> you heard about Henrietta Lacks? No. Well, let me tell you, that's where Hila Cells came from. I want to know, too. Her family was lied to when they think they had to go through. Just know that her cells do not grow like others do. 
I did a cameo in the video, which was really oh, cute. Oh, that's great. Because I happened to be in the Bay Area, so I went in, and it was amazing to watch. So first and only, but maybe not the last cameo in a rap video for you then? Absolutely. First, for sure. Maybe not the only. We'll see. They had to teach me how to dab, mm-hmm. um, which I, being like, what a middle-aged white chick, like, I never, I didn't even know what it was. And so I'm in there in this room dancing with all these kids. And somebody yells out, dab! And everybody around me dabs. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> and then I and I was so uncoordinated in doing it. But they taught me, and it was awesome. So now, yeah, I can I can now dab. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Lawrence Warren Jr. was a surgeon on hand. He took the tissue sample for the test to be ran. Dr. George Guy came on by. Trisha, I think this is the catchiest educational homework we have had in quite some time. It's pretty fantastic. These kids also, by the way, are adorable. You have to watch this video and all the other ones. It's something that my mom, who is a middle school teacher, would have totally done with her class. The production value would not have been as high on the video. I mean, come on, give your mom some credit. But she loved giving assignments like turn the Bill of Rights into a rap in her American history classes. So I am a big fan of this homework. Well done, Science Tom. Going white mold on cheddar. Mary cut her cells like a shredder. Me and my assistants come together because we know that her cells were the only the show is produced by us, Krisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Candace Mattel. And it is worth noting we failed to thank someone last week and we're all pretty upset about it. Justin Bull, intrepid producer here at WBEZ, helped make my space nerd dreams come true and we could not have done our interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Captain Jim Lovell without him. Thank you, Justin. Our hat's off to you, Mr. Bull. I'm not wearing a hat. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer, and our intern is Brady Guy. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on NPR One, or you can listen to us in the WBEZ app. If you like Nerdette and want other people to know it exists, it helps us out when you give us stars on Apple Podcasts. So thanks to Kabrinka and which is really, I'm not being insensitive about someone's name. This is just a lot of letters. Uh, There's not a single vowel at all and there's like 12 letters but thank you to this person who gave us many stars but apparently does not want the robots to know who they are this is is generous there's no vowels (laughs) we appreciate all of the nice reviews it's super helpful when you do that and you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook we are at Nerdette Podcast our theme music is by Poddington Bear do your homework do your homework do your homework (laughs) which includes dabbing this week when you watch the video i want you to dab along with rebecca okay we never gave permission mama didn't get recognition oh i spent all my time trying to find answers surgeon 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 how much longer will i be searching nerdette is supported by the sympathizer podcast from hbo join host philip nguyen in conversation with the cast crew and author viet tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.